Hi, I'm Connie Loises. And this is Alex Gove. And this is Strictly VC Download. Hello, happy Friday. We hope you've had a great week. Ours has been sort of meh. Candidly, I think I personally just get really tired after these TechCrunch disrupt shows. We call it the disrupt plague. And also after getting to interview my favorite celebrity, Conan O'Brien, last Friday, it was a little hard to get excited again about tech startups. But we're bouncing back. We're feeling the love. We're getting it done. Also, we were energized by our guest this week, bestselling author Anand Jiradharadas, who has made it his life's work to bring attention to rising inequality, a topic that deserves more attention than ever right now, given the way things have been trending throughout the pandemic, which is to say that Silicon Valley's billionaires have been minting money and growing their power at an accelerated pace. It raises a lot of questions, including, as Anand asks, is Silicon Valley loyal to America? Is it patriotic? Whom does it serve? We'll get into that a little bit later. But first, a look at a few of this week's stories. As part of the House Commerce Subcommittee's hearing examining how social media platforms contribute to the wider sharing of extremist and radicalizing content, Tim Kendall, a well-regarded Silicon Valley operator who was Facebook's first director of optimization, spoke to Congress yesterday about the company and some of his fears about Facebook. Some of these are observations that Kendall had also outlined in the new Netflix documentary, The Social Dilemma, which features early employees of Facebook, Google, Pinterest, Instagram, and other companies who worry deeply about the unforeseen consequences that all of these platforms are having on our society, even, as Kendall told Congress yesterday, pushing us to, quote, the brink of civil war. As part of his argument for why Facebook is overdue for some kind of regulation or external enforcement, he said, and I'm quoting, there's no incentive to stop it, meaning toxic content, and there's incredible incentive to keep going and get better. I just don't believe that's going to change unless there are financial, civil, or criminal penalties associated with the harm that they create. Without enforcement, they're just going to continue to be embarrassed by mistakes, and they'll talk about empty platitudes, but I don't believe anything systemic will change. The incentives to keep the status quo are just too lucrative at this point. Ars Technica has a write-up about the exchange with a PDF link to Kendall's full comments. Both are very much worth checking out. Google's parent company, Alphabet, has settled a series of shareholder lawsuits over its handling of sexual harassment claims. The news came via a settlement that was filed today in California Superior Court. Alphabet agreed to hold its board of directors accountable for future cases of sexual misconduct. Also, employees will no longer be required to settle disputes with Alphabet in private arbitration. The company said it would limit confidentiality restrictions when settling harassment and discrimination cases and ban workplace romances between managers and subordinates. And Alphabet has committed to spend $310 million over the next decade on corporate diversity programs. Alphabet was moved to action by a wave of shareholder lawsuits in response to the New York Times coverage of Andy Rubin's dismissal. Rubin, who founded and sold Android to Google and helped Google establish Android as the most popular mobile operating system in the world, was accused of sexual harassment by a Google employee. An internal Google investigation found this person's charges to be credible. Google subsequently terminated Rubin, but awarded him a $90 million exit package. When the New York Times disclosed Rubin's enormous severance package, it unleashed a firestorm of criticism. The article also included disturbing details about Rubin's abusive behavior at Google that the search giant tolerated for years. One particularly sordid detail was a text that Rubin sent to a former lover. You will be happy being taken care of, he wrote. 
Being owned is kind of like you are my property and I can loan you to other people. The piece highlighted inappropriate behavior by not just Ruben, but former CEO and chairman Eric Schmidt and former senior vice president and chief legal officer David Drummond as well. As a result of the article, over 20,000 Google employees staged a walkout and numerous shareholders filed suit. The Alphabet settlement announced today means that the company has taken steps to contain the damage and it may quiet protests for the time being, but Alphabet still faces numerous lawsuits in other jurisdictions, such as Delaware. For a company known for having all the answers, Alphabet's exposure to sexual harassment charges is still a big unknown. In other news, ChargePoint, one of the world's oldest and largest electric vehicle charging networks, said yesterday that it will go public by merging with Switchback Energy Acquisition Corp. in a deal that values the company at $2.4 billion. Switchback is a special purpose acquisition company, or a SPAC, that raised $300 million in an IPO roughly a year ago. And its CEO, Scott McNeil, told Reuters yesterday that the EV charging industry is expected to be a $190 billion market by 2030. Obviously, it's hoping ChargePoint Holdings which is what the combined company will be called, will be in a strong market position as the EV industry evolves. Either way, based on a quick conversation I had with some investors this week who invest in trains, planes, and automobiles, including Amy Gu of Hemi VC, Olaf Sockers of Maniv Mobility, and Riley Brennan, who is a general partner at Trucks Venture Capital and a lecturer at Stanford, there's going to be a lot of SPAC action in this space. The fact that shares of Tesla have soared so much that its market cap is nearly twice as big as Toyota Motors is one point of attraction. But also, a lot of these automotive technologies take a very long time to commercialize, and public market investors are reluctant to take a chance on an untested company. Meanwhile, it's often just such a long road that these are hard bets for VCs to be making. They're not really built to fund companies that can take a decade or more to mature. They're investing on a 10-year time horizon. So the thinking seems to be that if you can get a company out the door and onto the public market, it shows that some investor of means believes in a particular company, and hopefully you win over the trust of other public market investors in the process. Of course, speaking of trust, one potential wrinkle here that could perhaps cool enthusiasm in this space centers on Nikola, a company that intends to make heavy trucks powered by electricity and hydrogen fuel cells, and which merged with a SPAC back in June and saw its shares soar afterward. The problem is those shares, which hit around $73 in June, are now trading at $19, and not least because Nikola's chairman and CEO, Trevor Milton, abruptly resigned earlier this week after Nikola was accused by a firm called Hindenburg Research of intricate fraud. Nikola has disputed the claim, but federal authorities are examining the allegations, and all of this has reportedly led to stalled talks with several potential partners, including the oil and gas giant BP. So it's in this loop right now that it's not clear it can escape, and in the meantime, the executives at the company need to convince the world that it wasn't some kind of a fleece job, to quote one analyst watching the back and forth. Certainly, if this doesn't get resolved, it's going to give some investors more pause when it comes to buying into automotive-related SPACs. Speaking of which, listeners, I'm going to be talking with those aforementioned VCs, Amy, Olaf, and Riley at an upcoming TechCrunch event called Mobility that's taking place October 6th and 7th. If you want to join us, please do. You can find more information online. And now our interview with Anand Jiradharas, former New York Times columnist and correspondent and Aspen fellow who we talked with this week about Silicon Valley billionaires and how the pandemic is cementing their place in what he calls the new Rome. Unfortunately, we had some technical issues, which you won't hear, but we did lose roughly half our interview with him. So we hope to get him back on the program at some point. And now a word from our sponsor. Thank you.
Affinity has become the new standard for managing relationships and increasing deal flow. Using patented technology, Affinity helps teams manage and grow their networks by eliminating manual data entry and unlocking introductions to key decision makers. In industries where success is contingent on maintaining high-touch relationships, Affinity allows you to get deeper insights into your network so you can more easily open doors and close deals. You can learn more at Affinity.co or listen to their new podcast, Capital Connection, where they interview top investors about how their network influenced their success. Find Capital Connections on Spotify or Apple Podcast. We're thrilled today to have Anand Giridharadas with us, who has become one of the world's most prominent critics of inequality and inequity and contemporary capitalism. He authored the New York Times bestselling book, Winners Take All. He's currently working on another book that we are hoping uh, will arrive in bookstores by 2022. He also authors, in the meantime, a really wonderful email newsletter called The Ink, which you can find at the.ink. Anand, I have been really enjoying the ink. And in one issue, you set up this story of an Amazon warehouse worker who, coming off a shift, receives life-changing news. Jeff Bezos, the founder and chief executive of Amazon, has decided to give this person a bonus. In fact, Bezos has decided to give every single Amazon an, a bonus. This is 876,000 people. It's a one-time pandemic bonus of $105,000. Serious money, you write, the kind of money that, if invested over a couple of decades, would give the employees a real retirement nest egg. Of course, Bezos has done no such thing, but it's such an effective and jarring way to underscore what has happened during this pandemic with American billionaires, the 643 of them currently, seeing their vast fortunes soar by an average of 29% since the start of this coronavirus pandemic, which is just so hard to grapple with. And I'm not sure where to start, except that how much worse does this coronavirus and the acceleration of this wealth make addressing inequality? Well, just to finish the Bezos thing, I mean, the, the point of that story was if he did give that $105,000 bonus to that lucky individual, mm -hmm. and then having been moved by the reaction of that individual decided to give it to all other 876,000 individuals in his employ, the point is not that he would have spent down his fortune. The point is he would have left himself with as much wealth as he had in February right. of this year. He would merely, by giving nearly 900,000 people a hundred grand bonus each, would merely be at his pre-pandemic wealth. That's the wealth that he accumulated in the pandemic. So what the pandemic has done is two things. One, it has just quite literally made a bunch of billionaires a bunch of money. And mm -hmm. this has become true of every crisis in America, crises leave most people worse off. But when you're in an oligarchy or a plutocracy, what actually happens is crises leave the rich and powerful better off than they would be if there was no crisis. Because there are distressed assets to buy, because people switch to shopping online in the case of Amazon and can't go to their grocery store, whatever it is, the financial crisis. The, the people who caused it were the only people who ended up richer afterward. 90% of Americans were poor 10 years after the financial crisis in 2017 or 18, poorer than they were in 2007 or 8. 90% of Americans still hadn't been made whole. But of course, those bankers and their friends had very much been made whole. So there's this way in which these crises are not 
merely things the rich and powerful survive. There are things that they leverage and exploit, and it, it starts to raise the question of, are they even on the same team as us? Because when you have discussions about stimulus relief or around what kind of policy responses you could have to something like the 2008 financial crisis or the pandemic, there's initially some discussion and clamor for universal basic income right now, or substantial monthly checks for people, or even the French approach of nationalizing people's salaries, or back in the 2008 days, clamor for things like protecting people from foreclosure. And those things usually die, and they die thanks to corporate lobbyists and, and advocates of the rich and powerful, and are replaced by forms of relief that are upwardly redistributive, that essentially exploit a crisis to transfer wealth and power to the top. This whole situation reminds me a little bit of World War II. Maybe I'm a idealist or maybe I'm hopelessly naive, but in World War II or in other major crises of the earlier 20th century, there was this perception that industry would contribute to solving the crisis with government. And in this economy, we just didn't see that, in, in my view. There was of course, Donald Trump was very slow in calling on some of the auto manufacturers to help with masks and ventilators, but you really didn't see a lot of the major tech companies or a lot of the companies that were benefiting from this crisis really sacrificing something to help the U.S. Uh, do you see things that way? I think that's right, and I think it reflects a turning in the culture. You know, I'm always wary of idealizing certain periods in the past. And I think there were a lot of problems in that time, but I think there's no question that it was not as difficult back then as it is today to summon some kind of sense of common purpose and even the need to sacrifice values like profit-seeking for other values. And I think part of the result of the last 40 years of the great neoliberal conquest of American life and politics and culture, a kind of capital supremacist hijacking of the common good in this country, is that the vocabulary of common purpose has essentially been killed. It's not a vocabulary that really exists. I mean, after 9-11, President George W. Bush told us all to go shopping as the way to advance the common good. I mean, Donald Trump is now 18 levels of hell further down that path, not even telling us that we need to do anything for each other. Describing yesterday a pandemic that has killed 200,000 people as being something that doesn't really affect most people. So there's just been a coarsening and a kind of selfish trajectory of our culture after 40 years of being told that essentially the logic of markets, that what we do alone is better than what we do together, that what we do to create wealth is more important than what we do to advance shared goals. And 40 years of that message, that quite dismal, dull message, has had its consequences. And when you get a pandemic like this, and as you say, you suddenly need to be able to summon people to all socially distance or you know, at a minimum or, or more ambitiously, pull for the common good or pay higher taxes or actually things that might even cost them a little bit. It's just very hard to do because the groundwork isn't there. They now live in a culture in which the, the best life is a life lived in predation of the public. It seems like Silicon Valley is 
the master of this. You have talked about fake change, and specifically, you referenced Lean In and how Sheryl Sandberg was essentially describing patriarchy as a posture problem. You said people in Silicon Valley were proposing Lean In instead of maternity leave, which would be a much more of a, a helpful solution for most people. Well, Silicon Valley is the new Rome of our time. You know, when I say Rome, I mean a place in the world that ends up deciding how a lot of the rest of the world lives, a kind of imperial capital. No matter where you live on the planet Earth, when the Roman Empire started to rise, it had plans for you one way or another through your legal system or your language or culture or something else. The Roman Empire was coming for you, may have conquered you or may just have added some stuff to your constitution through a meandering historical route. But Silicon Valley is that for our time. It's the new Rome for our time, that you can't live on planet Earth and be unaffected directly or indirectly by the decisions made in this relatively small patch of Earth of Sand Hill Road and the tech companies in the city and so on and so forth. So the question then becomes, what does that new Rome want? And my impression, uh, having spent time in the Valley, having reported on that world, is that first of all, it's an incredibly homogeneous world of people at the top of this new Rome. It's white male dominated in a way that even other white male dominated sectors of the American economy are not. It makes finance look diverse. And I would say often just partly because of the nature of technology. It's a lot of a certain kind of man who often is actually more obtuse about understanding human society and sociological dynamics and, and human beings than the average person, a kind of person who was really, really into code when they were eight years old or whatever, and that's what they did. And they maybe didn't spend a lot of time negotiating human dynamics at sleepovers, which is fine. It's a fine life choice. <laughs> but when you end up with a new Rome that is hyper-dominated by people of one race and one gender, many of whom are disproportionately socially unintelligent, running the platforms through which most human sociality now occurs, democratic discourse, family communication, the platforms through which rumors about different ethnic groups spread in Myanmar, the platforms of commerce, obviously, and so on and so forth. We all start to live in a world created by people who frankly are just quite limited. And I don't mean this offensively, but I have a lot of problems with Mark Zuckerberg. I think Mark Zuckerberg is enabling fascism right now in a way that is truly dangerous. But my more basic critique of Mark Zuckerberg is Mark's a limited man. As someone who gets to interview a lot of people, talk to a lot of people, write about a lot of people, I'm constantly impressed by people I'm reading or meeting. Mark Zuckerberg is a disproportionately limited man. Elon Musk is a limited, limited man. These are not people of real range, of real complexity. They're smart at the thing they're smart at, but these are limited small men who have become in charge of a lot of how the world works. And they're simply not up to the task. And we see evidence of that every day. Are you speaking about empathy in large part? A lot of things. Empathy is absolutely one of them. The ability to understand the more amorphous, non-technological, non-quantifiable 
things. I don't know if you guys are on this uh, kind of funny new clubhouse app, but it's where a lot of these Silicon Valley people hang out and chat. And it's quite interesting. I, you know, I don't find it so offensive. I just find it kind of funny and weird. I know others, Taylor Lorenz and others have had real problems of harassment on it. But I like to dip in and just see how different communities, different groups, people think about things. And when you dip in, it's like all these people in the Valley talking about these huge governance challenges and like, oh, like, well, why don't we just do this? Or like, well, we don't, you know, we really need to write code so that democracy would do this. And it, it's so interesting because it's people who are clearly very smart in a certain area, but like just honestly do not understand the complexity of like democratic theory. There's just so much work that's been done. Deep, complicated thinking. I mean, going back to Plato and Aristotle, but also modern sociological work, like on the, on the complexities, like why, for example, a safety net and welfare, why it's complicated. It's complicated in a million levels, all the different incentives, the unintended consequences, the way it reshapes family life in a way that you didn't mean to. And then you got to like, human societies are just complicated. And I think a lot of people, like I think journalists understand that because that's what we kind of cover. I think teachers understand. There's no formula to be a teacher. You go in a class, you got 40 kids, you got to try 40 different things. Teachers get that. Like a lot of people in this society get that, right? You don't have firemen going into buildings being like, well, why is there a fire in this building? I told you not to play with matches. Like, like the world is complicated. And most people in my experience actually have some facility with understanding that complexity. And there's a certain kind of personality type that I have found very dominant in Silicon Valley, where it's these men who just don't really have a lens for that. And again, I'm not saying it's a problem. They're often geniuses. It's a certain kind of particular personality type where you care a lot about one thing and you go deep on that one thing. And it's probably the same personality type that Beethoven had or different people like that had. It's a great thing, actually. It's just not great for governing us. And what these people are doing are privately governing us. And they have no humility about the limitations of their worldview. My book hit the New York Times bestseller list. That's a good success. So now I am going to change lanes and dictate to Facebook what new verticals it should get into. But these folks have some modest success in what they do. And they suddenly think, I'm going to redesign public education. I think we should do democracy differently. I'm going to write a book and become a thought leader, like just leading with my thoughts. And I think it's just very interesting that you don't have people in other disciplines just manspreading the way they do intellectually, claiming that because they got lucky in creating some app, they know about the right way to reorganize human society. We've been watching The Social Dilemma, which is a special on Netflix. Right. It's about social media and its impact on people and particularly children. And we've been watching it with our kids and it's just made me aware and, and Connie, I think too, about how inured we've become to all of this social media that is dominating our lives. It seems like the perception has changed and that now it is reasonable to expect some kind of government action. Do you think that's naive or do you think that it's in the cards that there will be some change? Well, I think it's absolutely essential that the tech industry be brought into the same kind of sensible regulatory regime that every other industry has. I mean, you have kids, I have kids. If you've ever read the side of their car seats or any of the other products in their lives, you understand how much regulation there is for our benefit because I'm going on a limb here, but I'm guessing the two of you are not experts. 
in car seats. I'm guessing that if the two of you were presented a car seat that looked reasonable, you would not know whether it would actually protect your children in an accident or not. You can't just tell by looking at it unless you're an expert or you run some tests. And because you both have other things to do in your life besides run tests on car seats, the government does that for you, right? I often say the, go the government at its best is like a lawyer for all of us. The government is like, you know, why don't we check out these car seats for you and create some rules around them? And then you can just buy a car seat and not have to wonder whether it's the kind that protects your child or crumples. Well, that's what the government does for all kinds of things. And it's so fashionable in this neoliberal era to be critical of government or hostile to it or kind of gently, you know, government's kind of gross. Well, I have reported and traveled and lived around the world, including in developing countries, including in India, where my family came to the United States from. I will tell you, in many countries in the world, it is a literal crapshoot to go out for a meal because you don't know whether you're going to get a bad stomach bug, right? When I lived in India as a reporter for the New York Times for several years, I would get sick and I got pretty used to it. I was fine, but I would get sick, like stomach sick, like once a week or once every other week and just lose a day of work. And everybody does. A lot of people do. You know, people, I mean, it's not like being in India makes you immune to that stuff. India's fatality rates around that stuff are awful. That's just a big part of life in India is foodborne illnesses that kill and hurt lots of people. And we have largely eliminated that in the United States of America. That's just not something most of us have to think about anymore. And when people go out to eat in the United States of America, the thought of dying or getting a bacterial because of what's in the food is just a very low remote possibility. It happens, but it's very, very remote possibility. You've made a, a great point across your writings and interviews I've, that I've seen you give about government being so massively underestimated and underappreciated, and it's ridiculous. You've said who helps more with our health care than Medicaid, who helps the elderly more than Social Security. You've also talked about these billionaires who are not hesitant to make headlines with the donations they want to make to certain particular foundations. But of course, if you want to tax them, they're not interested in that because they have no control over where the money's going. Their name's not getting on a building. There are some very beloved companies out here that are very much guilty of this exact scenario. Netflix, for example, I think paid no federal income tax. I'm not sure if that was in 2018. Its CEO, Reed Hastings, has given a lot of money to historically black universities, I think, this year, which is wonderful. But similarly, Mark Benioff, the CEO and co-founder of Salesforce, his name is on everything. And Salesforce, I think in 2018, also paid no tax, which is insane. There's the tax issue, which I think is a hugely problematic. These big companies whose founders get a lot of credit for being very beneficent are not paying federal taxes. At the same time, they're talking about how they benefit society, so they've, they've evaded antitrust action. I'm just wondering if you had to choose between a government that takes antitrust action or somehow closes the tax loopholes, which would you prioritize of those two things? I think they're both important, but I think I would prioritize taxation. One way to think about it is there's pre-distribution and redistribution. The, a monopoly issue in a way is pre-distribution, which is how much money do you get to make in the first place? If you get to be a monopoly because we don't enforce antitrust laws, you're going to end up making pre-tax a lot more money than you would otherwise have made if you had to compete in an actual free market. And then once you've made that money, the tax question 
comes up, right? Of that, how much do you end up paying? So both are important and they both kind of end up in the same place in a way. But I think you can't overestimate the extent to which the tax thing is just foundational, just totally, totally foundational. If you look at the report that the 400 richest families in America pay a lower effective tax rate than I think the bottom half of families or something like that. It's appalling. It's just appalling. We live in a complicated world, but a lot of different things have been going on, including just in the last few months. But if you have to really summarize the the drift and the shift of the last 40 years, it's been a war on taxation, and it's been a massive redistribution of wealth from the bottom to the top of American life through taxation. And I think since the 80s, if I remember the numbers correctly, the top 1% has gained $21 trillion of wealth. And I think the bottom half of Americans have lost $900 billion of wealth on average, and much of that prosecuted through the tax code. One of the things that you've talked about is the instability of work and how that's such an important issue that is not really addressed. Do you think that the writing is on the wall for the quote unquote gig economy with recent legislation passed by California and, and other states that was reining in some of these companies? Well, I would urge the leaders of Uber and Lyft and others to stop being wusses, to be honest. Every other company in every other arena of this country, including ones that are abusive, at least most of them still have employees and survive and still acknowledge the industry they are in at a minimum. Uber and Lyft, like these other gig economy companies, are living in fantasy land. They deny they are the kind of companies that they are. They say they're not taxi companies. They're like matchmaking companies that just connect drivers to passengers. And then whatever happens between them is their business. They have no responsibility for anybody. The drivers are not hired as employees, even though they're totally controlling them and monitoring them in the way that is consistent with an employment relationship, not a free contractor relationship. And I would say these companies are wusses. What are they afraid of? You got to raise prices a few dollars? Fine, raise prices a few dollars. You have to figure out other ways to be more efficient in your business model? Like, fine. You have to spend less money on marketing? Fine. It is possible to run businesses in ways that are not built on the degradation of other people, but a lot of these folks wouldn't seem to know it. And I don't expect them to come to Jesus on this. The point is that California is exploring this, sometimes in a heavy-handed way, sometimes in a way that could be improved, but is exploring how do you create universal rules that force them to do this because they're not gonna do this of their own volition. That's it. Thanks a lot, everybody. Have a great week, and we'll see you back here Friday.